0: Book 3, Chapter 2 of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy MINTER. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book 3 Sophia. CHAPTER Two, SUPPER I. They had been to Versailles, and had dined there. A tram had sufficed to take them out. But for the return, Gerald, who had been drinking champagne, would not be content with less than a carriage. Further, he insisted on entering Paris by way of the Bois and the Arc de Triomphe. Thoroughly to appease his conceit, it would have been necessary to swing open the gates of honour in the ark and allow his fiacre to pass through, to be forced to drive round the monument, instead of under it, hurt the sense of fitness which champagne engenders. Gerald was all in his pride that day. He had been displaying the wonders to Sophia, and he could not escape the Cicerone's secret feeling that he himself was somehow responsible for the wonders.' Moreover, he was exceedingly satisfied with the effect produced by Sophia. Sophia, on arriving in Paris, with the ring on her triumphant finger, had timidly mentioned the subject of frocks. None would have guessed from her tone that she was possessed by the desire for French clothes as by a devil. She had been surprised and delighted by the eagerness of Gerald's response. Gerald, too, was possessed by a devil. He thirsted to see her in French clothes. He knew some of the shops and ateliers in the Rue de la Paix, the Rue de la Chaussée d'Antin, and the Palais Royal. He was much more skilled in the law of frocks than she, for his previous business in Paris had brought him into relations with the great firms, and Sophia suffered a brief humiliation in the discovery that his private opinion of her dresses was that they were not dresses at all. She had been aware that they were not Parisian, nor even of London, but she had thought them pretty good. It healed her wound, however, to reflect that Gerald had so marvellously kept his own counsel in order to spare her self-love. Gerald had taken her to an establishment in the Chaussée d'Antin. It was not one of what Gerald called Les Grandes Maisons, but it was on the very fringe of them, and the real haute couture was practised therein, and Gerald was remembered there by name. Sophia had gone in trembling and ashamed— Yet in her heart, courageously determined to emerge uncompromisingly French, but the models frightened her. They surpassed even the most fantastic things that she had seen in the streets. She recoiled before them, and seemed to hide for refuge in Gerald, as it were appealing to him for moral protection, and answering to him instead of the saleswoman, when the saleswoman offered remarks in stiff English. The prices also frightened her. The simplest trifle here cost sixteen pounds— and her mother's historic silk whose elaborateness had cost twelve pounds was supposed to have approached the inexpressible gerald said that she was not to think about prices she was however forced by some instinct to think about prices she who at home had scorned the narrowness of life in the square in the square she was understood to be quite without common sense hopelessly imprudent yet here a spring of sagacity seemed to be welling up in her all the time a continual antidote against the general madness in which she found herself. With extraordinary rapidity she had formed the habit of preaching moderation to Gerald. She hated to see money thrown away, and her notion of the boundary-line between throwing money away and judiciously spending it was still the notion of the square. Gerald would laugh, but she would say, piqued and blushing, but self-sure, "'You can laugh!' It was all deliciously agreeable." On this evening she wore the first of the new costumes. She had worn it all day. Characteristically, she had chosen something which was not too special for either afternoon or evening, for either warm or cold weather. It was of pale blue taffetas, striped in a darker blue, with the corsage cut in basques, and the underskirt of a similar taffeta's, but unstriped. The effect of the ornate overskirt falling on the plain underskirt, with its small doubled volant, was, she thought, and Gerald too, adorable. The waist was higher than any she had had before, and the crinoline expansive. Tied round her head, with a large bow and flying blue ribbons under the chin, was a fragile flat capote, like a baby's bonnet, which allowed her hair to escape in front and her great chignon behind. A large spotted veil flew out from the capote over the chignon, Her doubled skirts waved amply over Gerald's knees in the carriage, and she leant back against the hard cushions and put an arrogant look into her face, and thought of nothing but the intense, throbbing joy of life, longing with painful ardour for more and more pleasure, then and for ever. As the carriage slipped downwards through the wide, empty gloom of the Champs-Élysées into the brilliant Paris that was waiting for them, Another carriage, drawn by two white horses, flashed upwards, and was gone in dust. Its only occupant, except the coachman and footman, was a woman. Gerald stared after it. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'That's Hortense!' "'It might have been Hortense, or it might not, but he instantly convinced himself that it was. Not every evening did one meet Hortense, driving alone in the Champs-Elysees, and in August, too. "'Hortense?' "'Sophia asked, simply. "'Yes, Hortense Schneider.' "'Who is she?' "'You've never heard of Hortense Schneider?' "'No.' "'Well, have you ever heard of Offenbach?' "Uh, "'I don't know. I don't think so.' He had the mien of utter incredulity. "'You don't mean to say you've never heard of Bluebeard?' "'I've heard of Bluebeard, of course,' said she. "'Who hasn't?' "'I mean the opera.' "'Offenbachs!' She shook her head, scarce knowing even what an opera was. "'Well, well, what next?' He implied that such ignorance stood alone in his experience. Really, he was delighted at the cleanness of the slate on which he had to write. And Sophia was not a bit alarmed. She relished instruction from his lips. It was a pleasure to her to learn from that exhaustless store of worldly knowledge.' To the world she would do her best to assume omniscience in its ways, but to him, in her present mood, she liked to play the ignorant, uninitiated little thing. "'Why,' he said, "'the Schneider has been the rage since last year but one. Absolutely the rage!' "'I do wish I'd noticed her,' said Sophia. "'As soon as the varieties reopens, we'll go and see her,' he replied, and then gave his detailed version of the career of Hortense Schneider." more joys for her in the near future. She had yet scarcely penetrated the crust of her bliss. She exulted in the dazzling destiny which comprised freedom, fortune, eternal gaiety, and the exquisite Gerald. As they crossed the Place de la Concorde, she inquired, "'Are we going back to the hotel?' "'No,' he said. "'I thought we'd go and have supper somewhere, if it isn't too early.' "'After all that dinner?' "'All what dinner?' "'You ate about five times as much as me, anyhow.' "'Oh, I'm ready,' she said. She was. This day, because it was the first day of her French frock, she regarded as her debut in the dizzy life of Capitals. She existed in a rapture of bliss, an ecstasy which could feel no fatigue, either of body or spirit. 2. It was after midnight when they went into the Restaurant Sylvain gerald having decided not to go to the hotel had changed his mind and called there and having called there had remained a long time this of course sophia was already accustoming herself to the idea that with gerald it was impossible to predict accurately more than five minutes of the future as the chasseur held open the door for them to enter and sophia passed modestly into the glowing yellow interior of the restaurant followed by gerald in his character of man of the world they drew the attention of Sylvain's numerous and glittering guests. No face could have made a more provocative contrast to the women's faces in those screened rooms than the face of Sophia, so childlike between the baby's bonnet and the huge bow of ribbon, so candid, so charmingly conscious of its own pure beauty, and of the fact that she was no longer a virgin, but the equal in knowledge of any woman alive." she saw around her clustered about the white tables multitudes of violently red lips powdered cheeks cold hard eyes self-possessed arrogant faces and insolent bosoms what had impressed her more than anything else in paris more even than the three-horsed omnibuses was the extraordinary self-assurance of all the women their unashamed posing their calm acceptance for the public gaze they seemed to say "'We are the renowned Parisiennes,' they frightened her. They appeared to her so corrupt and so proud in their corruption. She had already seen a dozen women, in various situations of conspicuousness, apply powder to their complexions, with no more ado than if they had been giving a pat to their hair. She could not understand such boldness. As for them, they marvelled at the phenomena presented in Sophia's person. They admired, they admitted the style of the gown— But they envied neither her innocence nor her beauty they envied nothing but her youth and the fresh tint of her cheeks encore des anglais said some of them as if that explained it all gerald had a very curt way with waiters and the more obsequious they were the haughtier he became and a head-waiter was no more to him than a scullion he gave loud-voiced orders in french of which both he and sophia were proud and a table was laid for them, in a corner near one of the large windows. Sophia settled herself on the bench of green velvet, and began to ply the ivory fan which Gerald had given her. It was very hot, all the windows were wide open, and the sounds of the street mingled clearly with the tinkle of the supper-room. Outside, against a sky of deepest purple, Sophia could discern the black skeleton of a gigantic building. It was the new opera-house." All sorts here, said Gerald contentedly after he had ordered iced soup and sparkling moselle. Sophia did not know what moselle was, but she imagined that anything would be better than champagne. Sylvain's was then typical of the Second Empire and particularly famous as a supper room. Expensive and gay, it provided with its discreet decorations a sumptuous scene where laurettes, actresses, respectable women, and an occasional grisette in luck, could satisfy their curiosity as to each other. In its catholicity it was highly correct as a resort. Not many other restaurants in the centre could have successfully fought against the rival attractions of the Bois and the dim groves of the Champs-Élysées on a night in August. The complicated richness of the dresses, the yards and yards of fine stitchery, the endless ruching, the hints, more or less incautious, of nether treasures of embroidered linen, and leaping over all this to the eye, the vivid colourings of silks and muslins, veils, plumes, and flowers, piled, as it were, pell-mell in heaps on the universal green cushions to the furthest vista of the restaurant, and all multiplied in gilt mirrors. The spectacle intoxicated Sophia. Her eyes gleamed. She drank the soup with eagerness, and tasted the wine, though no desire on her part to like wine could make her like it, and then, seeing pineapples on a large table, covered with fruits, she told Gerald that she would like some pineapple, and Gerald ordered one. She gathered her self-esteem and her wits together, and began to give Gerald her views on the costumes. She could do so with impunity, because her own was indubitably beyond criticism. Some she wholly condemned, and there was not one which earned her unreserved approval. All the absurd fastidiousness of her schoolgirlish provinciality emerged in that eager, affected torrent of remarks. However, she was clever enough to read, after a time, in Gerald's tone and features, that she was making a tedious fool of herself, and she adroitly shifted her criticism from the taste to the work. She put a strong accent on the word— and pronounced that to be miraculous beyond description. She reckoned that she knew what dressmaking and millinery were, and her little fund of expert knowledge caused her to picture a whole necessary cityful of girls stitching, stitching, and stitching, day and night. She had wondered, during the few odd days that they had spent in Paris, between visits to Chantilly and other places, at the massed luxury of the shops. She had wondered, starting with St. Luke's Square as a standard, how they could all thrive. But now, in her first real glimpse of the banal and licentious profusion of one among a hundred restaurants, she wondered that the shops were so few. She thought how splendid was all this expensiveness for trade. Indeed, the notions chasing each other within that lovely and foolish head were a surprising medley. "'Well, what do you think of Sylvain's?' Gerald asked, impatient to be assured that his Sylvain's had duly overwhelmed her. "'Oh, Gerald!' she murmured, indicating that speech was inadequate, and she just furtively touched his hand with hers. The ennui due to her critical disquisition on the shortcomings of Parisian costume cleared away from Gerald's face. "'What do you suppose those people there are talking about?' he said, with a jerk of the head towards a chattering group of three gorgeous lorettes and two middle-aged men at the next table but one. "'What are they talking about?' "'They're talking about the execution of the murderer Rivain "'that takes place at Auxerre the day after to-morrow. "'They're arranging to make up a party to go and see it.' "'Oh, what a horrid idea!' said Sophia. "'Guillotine, you know,' said Gerald. "'But can people see it?' "'Yes, of course.' "'Well, I think it's horrible.' "'Yes, that's why people like to go and see it. "'Besides, the man isn't an ordinary sort of criminal at all.' "'He's very young and good-looking and well-connected, "'and he killed the celebrated Claudine.' "'Claudine?' "'Claudine Jacquinot. "'Of course, you wouldn't know. "'She was a tremendous uh, wrong here in the forties, "'made a lot of money, and retired to her native town.' "'Sophia, in spite of her efforts to maintain the role "'of a woman who has nothing to learn, blushed. "'Then she was older than he is. thirty-five years older, if a day. "'What did he kill her for?' She wouldn't give him enough money. She was his mistress, or rather one of them. He wanted money for a young lady friend, you see. He killed her and took all the jewels she was wearing. Whenever he went to see her, she always wore all her best jewels. And you may bet a woman like that had a few. It seems she had been afraid for a long time that he meant to do for her. Then why did she see him? And why did she wear her jewels? Because she liked being afraid, Goose. "'Some women only enjoy themselves when they're terrified. "'Queer, isn't it?' Gerald insisted on meeting his wife's gaze as he finished these revelations. He pretended that such stories were the commonest things on earth, and that to be scandalised by them was infantile. Sophia thrust suddenly into a strange civilization, perfectly frank in its sensuality and its sensuousness, under the guidance of a young man to whom her half-formed intelligence was a most diverting toy.' sophia felt mysteriously uncomfortable disturbed by sinister flitting phantoms of ideas which she only dimly apprehended her eyes fell gerald laughed self-consciously she would not eat any more pineapple immediately afterwards there came into the restaurant an apparition which momentarily stopped every conversation in the room It was a tall and mature woman who wore, over a dress of purplish-black silk, a vast flowing sautille de bal of vermilion velvet, looped and tasseled with gold. No other costume could live by the side of that garment. Arab in shape, Russian in colour, and Parisian in style, it blazed. The woman's heavy coiffure was bound with fillets of gold braid and crimson rosettes. She was followed by a young Englishman in evening dress and whiskers of the most exact correctness. The woman sailed, a little breathlessly, to a table next to Gerald's, and took possession of it with an air of use, almost of tedium. She sat down, threw the cloak from her majestic bosom, and expanded her chest. Seeming to ignore the Englishman, who superciliously assumed the seat opposite to her— She let her large scornful eyes travel round the restaurant, slowly and imperiously meeting the curiosity which she had evoked. Her beauty had undoubtedly been dazzling. It was still effulgent, but the blossom was about to fall. She was admirably rouged and powdered. Her arms were glorious. Her lashes were long. There was little fault, save the excessive ripeness of a blonde who fights in vain against obesity and her clothes combined audacity with the propriety of fashion. She carelessly deposed costly trinkets on the table, and then, having intimidated the whole company, she accepted the menu from the head waiter and began to study it. "'That's one of em," Gerald whispered to Sophia. "'One of what?' Sophia whispered. Gerald raised his eyebrows warningly and winked the Englishman had overheard, and a look of frigid displeasure passed across his proud face. Evidently he belonged to a rank much higher than Gerald's, and Gerald, though he could always comfort himself by the thought that he had been to a university with the best, felt his own inferiority, and could not hide that he felt it. Gerald was wealthy, he came of a wealthy family, but he had not the habit of wealth. When he spent money furiously, he did it with bravado, too conscious of grandeur, and too conscious of the difficulties of acquiring that which he threw away. For Gerald had earned money. This whiskered Englishman had never earned money, never known the value of it, never imagined himself without as much of it as he might happen to want. He had the face of one accustomed to give orders, and to look down upon inferiors. He was absolutely sure of himself." That his companion chiefly ignored him did not appear to incommode him in the least. She spoke to him in French, he replied in English, very briefly, and then in English he commanded the supper. As soon as the champagne was served he began to drink. In the intervals of drinking he gently stroked his whiskers. The woman spoke no more. Gerald talked more loudly. With that aristocratic Englishman observing him he could not remain at ease and not only did he talk more loudly, he brought into conversation references to money, travels, and worldly experiences. While seeking to impress the Englishman, he was merely becoming ridiculous to the Englishman, and obscurely he was aware of this. Sophia noticed and regretted it. Still, feeling very unimportant herself, she was reconciled to the superiority of the whiskered Englishman as to a natural fact. Gerald's behaviour slightly lowered him in her esteem. Then she looked at him, at his well-shaped neatness, his vivacious face, his excellent clothes, and decided that he was much to be preferred to any heavy-jawed, long-nosed aristocrat alive. The woman, whose vermilion cloak lay around her like a fortification, spoke to her escort. He did not understand. He tried to express himself in French, and failed. Then the woman recommenced— talking at length. When she had done, he shook his head. His acquaintance with French was limited to the vocabulary of food. "'Guillotine?' he murmured, the sole word of her discourse that he had understood. "'Oui, oui, guillotine, enfin!' cried the woman excitedly. Encouraged by her success in conveying even one word of her remarks, she began a third time. "'Excuse me,' said Gerald, Madame is talking about the execution at Auxerre the day after to-morrow. N'est-ce pas, Madame, que vous parlez de Rivain? The Englishman glared angrily at Gerald's officious interruption. But the woman smiled benevolently on Gerald, and insisted on talking to her friend through him, and the Englishman had to make the best of the situation. "'There isn't a restaurant in Paris to-night where they aren't talking about that execution,' said Gerald, on his own account." Indeed, observed the Englishman. Wine affected them in different ways. Now a fragile, short Frenchman, with an extremely pale face, ending in a thin black imperial, appeared at the entrance. He looked about, and, recognising the woman of the scarlet cloak, very discreetly saluted her. Then he saw Gerald, and his worn, fatigued features showed a sudden, startled smile. He came rapidly forward, hat in hand, seized Gerald's palm, and greeted him effusively. "'My wife,' said Gerald, with the solemn care of a man who is determined to prove that he is entirely sober. The young man became grave and excessively ceremonious. He bowed low over Sophia's hand and kissed it. Her impulse was to laugh, but the gravity of the young man's deference stopped her. She glanced at Gerald, blushing, as if to say— "'This comedy is not my fault,' Gerald said something. The young man turned to him, and his face resumed its welcoming smile. "'This is Monsieur Chirac,' Gerald at length completed the introduction, "'a friend of mine when I lived in Paris. He was proud to have met by accident an acquaintance in a restaurant. It demonstrated that he was a Parisian, and improved his standing with the whiskered Englishman and the vermilion cloak.' "'It is the first time you come to Paris, madame.' Chirac addressed himself to Sophia in limping, timorous English. "'Yes,' she giggled. He bowed again. Chirac, with his best compliments, felicitated Gerald upon his marriage. "'Don't mention it,' said the humorous Gerald in English, amused at his own wit. And then, "'What about this execution?' "'Ah!' "'replied Chirac, breathing out a long breath, and smiling at Sophia. "'Rivaine! Rivain he made a large, important gesture with his hand. "'It was at once to be seen that Gerald had touched the topic "'which secretly ravaged the supper-world as a subterranean fire ravages a mine. "'I go,' said Chirac, with pride, glancing at Sophia, who smiled self-consciously. "'Chirac entered upon a conversation with Gerald in French.' Sophia comprehended that Gerald was surprised and impressed by what Chirac told him, and that Chirac in turn was surprised. Then Gerald laboriously found his pocket-book, and, after some fumbling with it, handed it to Chirac, so that the latter might write in it. Madame, murmured Chirac, resuming his ceremonious stiffness in order to take leave, "'alors, c'est entendu, mon cher ami,' he said to Gerald, who nodded phlegmatically. And Chirac went away to the next table but one. Where were the three Lorettes and the two middle-aged men? He was received there with enthusiasm. Sophia began to be teased by a little fear that Gerald was not quite his usual self. She did not think of him as tipsy. The idea of his being tipsy would have shocked her. She did not think clearly at all. She was lost and dazed in the labyrinth of new and vivid impressions into which Gerald had led her. But her prudence was awake. "'I think I'm tired,' she said in a low voice. "'You don't want to go, do you?' he asked, hurt. "'Well—' "'Oh, wait a bit.' The owner of the vermilion cloak spoke again to Gerald, who showed that he was flattered. While talking to her he ordered a brandy and soda, and then he could not refrain from displaying to her his familiarity with Parisian life, and he related how he had met Hortense Schneider behind the pair of white horses.' The vermilion cloak grew even more sociable at the mention of this resounding name, and chattered with the most agreeable vivacity. Her friend stared inimically. "'Do you hear that,' Gerald explained to Sophia, who was sitting silent, "'about Hortense Schneider. You know, we met her tonight. It seems she made a bet of a louis with some fellow, and when he lost he sent her the louis, set in diamonds, worth a hundred thousand francs. That's how they go on here.' "'Oh!' cried sophia further than ever in the labyrinth excuse me the englishman put in heavily he had heard the words hortense schneider hortense schneider repeating themselves in the conversation and at last it had occurred to him that the conversation was about hortense schneider excuse me he began again are you do you mean hortense schneider yes said gerald we met her tonight She's in Trouville," said the Englishman flatly. Gerald shook his head positively. "I gave a supper to her in Trouville last night," said the Englishman, "and she plays at the Casino Theatre tonight." Gerald was repulsed but not defeated. "What is she playing tonight? Tell me that," he sneered. "I don't see why I should tell you." "Hm," Gerald retorted if what you say is true it's a very strange thing i should have seen her in the champs elysees tonight isn't it the englishman drank more wine if you want to insult me sir he began coldly gerald sophia urged in a whisper be quiet gerald snapped a fiddler in fancy costume plunged into the restaurant at that moment and began to play wildly The shock of his strange advent momentarily silenced the quarrel, but it soon leapt up again, under the shelter of the noisy music—the common, tedious, tippler's quarrel. It rose higher and higher. The fiddler looked askance at it over his fiddle. Chirac cautiously observed it. Instead of attending to the music, the festal company attended to the quarrel. Three waiters in a group watched it with an impartial sporting interest. The English voices grew more menacing, then suddenly the whiskered englishman jerking his head towards the door said more quietly hadn't we better settle this aside at your service said gerald rising the owner of the vermilion cloak lifted her eyebrows to chirac in fatigued disgust but she said nothing nor did sophia say anything sophia was overcome by terror The swain of the cloak, dragging his coat after him across the floor, left the restaurant without offering any apology or explanation to his lady. "'Wait here for me,' said Gerald defiantly to Sophia. "'I shall be back in a minute.' "'But Gerald!' she put her hand on his sleeve. He snatched his arm away. "'Wait here for me, I tell you!' he repeated. The doorkeeper obsequiously opened the door to the two unsteady carousers, for whom the fiddler drew back, still playing. Thus Sophia was left side by side with the vermilion cloak. She was quite helpless. All the pride of a married woman had abandoned her. She stood transfixed by intense shame, staring painfully at a pillar to avoid the universal assault of eyes. She felt like an indiscreet little girl, and she looked like one. No youthful radiant beauty of features, no grace and style of a Parisian dress, no certificate of a ring, no premature initiation into the mysteries could save her from the appearance of a raw fool whose foolishness had been her undoing. Her face changed to its reddest, and remained at that, and all the fundamental innocence of her nature— which had been overlaid by the violent experiences of her brief companionship with Gerald, rose again to the surface with that blush. Her situation drew pity from a few hearts, and a careless contempt from the rest. But since once more it was a question of ses anglais, nobody could be astonished. Without moving her head, she twisted her eyes to the clock, half-past two. The fiddler ceased his dance, and made a collection in his tasselled cap. The vermilion cloak threw a coin into the cap. Sophia stared at it, moveless, until the fiddler, tired of waiting, passed to the next table and relieved her agony. She had no money at all. She set herself to watch the clock, but its fingers would not stir. With an exclamation the lady of the cloak got up and peered out of the window, chatted with waiters, and then removed herself and her cloak to the next table where she was received with amiable sympathy by the three Lorettes, Chirac, and the other two men. The party surreptitiously examined Sophia from time to time. Then Chirac went outside with the head-waiter, returned, consulted with his friends, and finally approached Sophia. It was twenty minutes past three. He renewed his magnificent bow. "'Madame,' he said carefully, "'will you allow me to bring you to your hotel?' He made no reference to Gerald, partly doubtless because his English was treacherous on difficult ground. Sophia had not sufficient presence of mind to thank her saviour. But the bill, she stammered, the bill is not paid. He did not instantly understand her, but one of the waiters had caught the sound of a familiar word, and sprang forward with a slip of paper on a plate. "'I have no money,' said Sophia, with a feeble smile. "'Je vous arrangerai ça,' he said what the name of the hotel uh, maurice is it not hotel maurice said sophia yes he spoke to the head-waiter about the bill which was carried away like something obscene and on his arm which he punctiliously offered and she could not refuse sophia left the scene of her ignominy she was so distraught that she could not manage her crinoline in the doorway no sign anywhere outside of gerald or his foe he put her into an open carriage and in five minutes they had clattered down the brilliant silence of the rue de la paix through the place Vendôme, into the rue de rivoli and the night porter of the hotel was at the carriage step i tell them at the at restaurant where you are gone said chirac bareheaded under the long colonnade of the street if your husband is there i tell him till tomorrow his manners were more wonderful than any that Sophia had ever imagined. He might have been in the dark tuileries on the opposite side of the street, saluting an empress, instead of taking leave of a raw little girl, who was still too disturbed even to thank him. She fled, candle in hand up the wide, many-cornered stairs. Gerald might be already in the bedroom, drunk. There was a chance. But the gilt-fringed bedroom was empty she sat down at the velvet-covered table amid the shadows cast by the candle that wavered in the draught from the open window and she set her teeth and a cold fury possessed her in the hot and languorous night gerald was an imbecile that he should have allowed himself to get tipsy was bad enough but that he should have exposed her to the horrible situation from which Chirac had extricated her was unspeakably disgraceful. He was an imbecile. He had no common sense. With all his captivating charm, he could not be relied upon not to make himself and her ridiculous, tragically ridiculous. Compare him with Mr. Chirac! She leant despairingly on the table. She would not undress. She would not move. She had to realise her position. She had to see it. Folly! Folly! Fancy a commercial traveller throwing a compromising piece of paper to the daughter of his customer in the shop itself! That was the incredible folly with which their relations had begun! And his mad gesture at the pit shaft! And his scheme for bringing her to Paris unmarried! And then to-night! Monstrous folly! Alone in the bedroom she was a wise and a disillusioned woman, wiser than any of those dolls in the restaurant." And had she not gone to Gerald, as it were, over the dead body of her father, through lies and lies and again lies—that was how she phrased it to herself—over the dead body of her father. How could such a venture succeed? How could she ever have hoped that it would succeed? In that moment she saw her acts with the terrible vision of a Hebrew prophet. She thought of the square, and of her life there with her mother and Constance. Never would her pride allow her to return to that life, not even if the worst happened to her that could happen. She was one of those who are prepared to pay without grumbling for what they have had. There was a sound outside. She noticed that the dawn had begun. The door opened, and disclosed Gerald. They exchanged a searching glance, and Gerald shut the door. Gerald affected the air, but she perceived at once that he was sobered. His lip was bleeding." "'Mr. Chirac brought me home,' she said. "'So it seems,' said Gerald curtly. "'I asked you to wait for me. Didn't I say I should come back?' He was adopting the injured magisterial tone of the man who is ridiculously trying to conceal from himself and others that he has recently behaved like an ass. She resented the injustice. "'I don't think you need talk like that,' she said. "'Like what?' He bullied her, determined that she should be in the wrong, and what a hard look on his pretty face. Her prudence bade her accept the injustice. She was his. Wrapped away from her own world, she was utterly dependent on his good nature. "'I knocked my chin against the damned balustrade, coming upstairs,' said Gerald, gloomily. She knew that that was a lie. "'Did you?' she replied kindly. "'Let me bathe it.' End of chapter 2